Hey, everybody. Nice to see you. Happy Father's Day. It's a good day to be a dad. I want to greet all of you. You know, uh, if you're new to Cornerstone, we are on five campuses uh, across the East Bay. Uh, there are, there'll be about 1,000 people watching online this weekend. And then uh, those of you that are uh, Cornerstone uh, inside in the prisons in the U.S., uh, grab your Bibles. We're opening up uh, the book of Esther. We'll be in Esther this weekend and next weekend I open uh, Nehemiah chapter one. And uh, the book of Nehemiah is a book about prayer and a book about leadership. There are so many prayers in this book and so I called Francis Chan who wrote a book about prayer and I said, hey, come on, come over across the bay and teach us about prayer. So two weeks from today, uh, two weeks from this weekend, Francis will be with us. And uh, he wrote a book about prayer, so if you want to get ready for Francis, you can go on Amazon and download that book and be ready to go. But today we're in uh, Esther, starting with chapter uh, four in this third weekend of a summer leadership series. And I think you know that the Bible is packed with uh, principles about leadership that are easily trans, uh, translatable to the 21st century. And uh, we're studying the lives of these two Old Testament heroes, Esther, a brave, intelligent, creative uh, woman who risked her life to lead. And, uh, and at some point earlier before the story starts, Esther was orphaned, and we don't know the story. We know that her cousin Mordecai uh, took her in and raised her like a daughter, so this story takes place in the late 400s BC in Susa, the capital city of Persia, located in what is now south, uh, uh, southern Iraq. Yeah, the Persian Empire was vast. It stretched from India to northern Egypt. Uh, there were 127 nation states that were vassal states to the Persian Empire, and the king is here in this palace uh, in Iraq. Uh, and Esther and Mordecai, now they're Persian. Uh, ethnically, they're Jewish, but they've never been to Israel, um, and uh, their, their, their parents had never been to Israel, their grandparents had never been to Israel, possibly their great-grandparents. It was 110 years before that the Jews were conquered and Jerusalem was sacked, and Nebuchadnezzar the king took, um, whoever survived the battle, took them to uh, what was then Babylon uh, to be relocated and retrained in all things Babylonian, and then put... Uh, to work. And uh, so you will remember Jewish men like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, uh, these guys, uh, Jewish, but they excelled in Persian, Persian education. And the government took notice and they ended up uh, very high in uh, the Babylonian uh, government. But then soon Babylon fell to Persia and uh, Cyrus the king conquered uh, Nebuchadnezzar and all of things that were Babylonian were, were just absorbed into the Persian uh, empire. And the Persian king uh, was much more apt to be inclusive of the Jews, much more apt to be respectful of their religion and their God. And uh, so he even funded trips where uh, caravans of Jews could return to Jerusalem and begin to rebuild uh, their city that had laid in ruins for over 100 years. But most of the Persian Jews didn't go back to Israel. It was, Persia was a great place to live. Uh, it, was a, it was a wonderful culture, and they were very comfortable there. And ret returning to Judea would mean a long, 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 dangerous journey uh, west, saying goodbye to your family and friends forever. And then once you get there, 
you really are going to work the rest of your life to rebuild uh, culture around Jerusalem and to rebuild the city. So in the book of Nehemiah, we're gonna, we're gonna study a leader who took uh, a big group back. In the book of Esther, we study leaders who stayed in Persia, both of them finding um, great success uh, in leadership. And uh, Mordecai and Esther, two Jews living in Persian culture, but having a tremendous difference in their world as the minority voice, which makes uh, their story a story that we can learn from too, because we Christians are the minority voice in the San Francisco uh, Bay Area. The Christian point of view is not necessarily understood. And we've even got people out there representing themselves as Christian with big signs and whatever, with nothing but hatred on those signs, and uh, different folks where we go, you know, that's not even us, and they're the ones getting uh, the press. But as Billy and Becky have pointed out, we can blast past that, and we can still have tremendous impact in our own zip codes, leading as a minority voice, if we can understand and come to uh, an appreciation of our influence, the influence that each of us have. As Billy taught us, leadership is nothing more than influence. And what exactly is influence? It's, it's to have an effect on a group of people, to cause them to think differently, to cause them to speak differently, to cause them to act differently, for their character to change, to guide them, to shape them. And you can do that from a minority position. Sometimes it's even easier to do that from a minority position because we can be more, more stealth. Leadership just learns to leverage our influence. And so what we do as believers, we, 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 are, we, we become self-aware enough to, to, to look around and realize, okay, well, I'm self-aware enough to know it's not about me, and then I look around and I'm others aware enough to know, how can I influence these people at work? And not manipulate, influence. How can I influence my own family, to my children, to go into their school and influence their teachers and their administrators and, the, and the, the fellow students? How can I prepare my child for the university setting? How can I influence my literal neighbors on my own street in such a way where they, they watch me and they see something that is, uh, is appealing to them? And for uh, uh, Christ followers in, in, in the Bay Area that are trying to lead in this way, this requires creativity, it requires uh, patience, but also we have to be stubborn, uh, and it requires a winsome approach because our gospel, uh, good news is what the gospel means, and our good news has to feel like good news to people, or they're not going to even listen to us, much less uh, visit our church on a beautiful California weekend, or want to come to our community group at our house where instead of drinking too much, we're gonna be talking about God and having our Bibles open and praying for each other. Uh, we've gotta earn the respect of our neighbors before they're going to darken our door. But that's what happens with Cornerstone. Cornerstone has been famous and now on five campuses for doing just that. So let's keep that up as we leverage the respect that we're being given by our neighbors. Now for Esther, her assignment was to earn the respect of her husband. The king. Well, first she had to earn the respect of the king and win uh, the contest that she won in order to be the king. Uh, and this guy, well, he's a piece of work. He's, he, he's arrogant, he's shallow, he's self-absorbed, he's incredibly wealthy. Uh, everybody who comes to him is, is uh, honoring him all the time. Uh, no one confronts him. Uh, he's a heavy drinker. Uh, he makes decisions impulsively. 
Uh, you remember the decision he made to sideline his queen just because she told him that she didn't want to parade around in front of his drunken buddies as a, as a trophy wife? He said, well, fine, then you're not the queen anymore. And he, there's this whole beauty contest where he decides to pick a new queen, and Esther is entered into this contest. Probably she had no say in this, but here's the deal. Once she's entered into that contest, she decides, well, I might as well win. And she does. And this girl becomes the queen of Persia. Uh, the first Jewish queen of Persia, by the way. And Xerxes probably didn't know she was Jewish. Uh, her adopted father, Mordecai, had instructed her to keep that one on the down low because he, he knew that there was a growing anti-Semitism in the capital city. And so she took his, his advice, as she always did. His advice was a great idea, and she remains hidden in her Jewish identity. And that's what her name means. Esther means hidden. Uh, and hidden in a beautiful way, like, like, like hidden by God, uh, placed by God in, in a secret place that later uh, will be uh, revealed. And, uh, and I think there's wisdom there for us as well. As we determine what creative approach are we going to have, we just got a new job at a company that may be known for not necessarily being pro-Christian. We might not want to go into that new job with our Jesus t-shirt and our gospel guns blazing. We might want to uh, figure out, wait, how am I going to, I think first I'll excel. I think first I'll impress them. And then uh, over time, I'll let God um, uh, un un unpack that. Um, I, I was thinking of those of you that are specifically getting ready for uh, public university and the opposition that you will face in the university uh, from some of your professors who, they have all the power in that classroom. And so how wise it would be for you to maybe show some nuance and hidden, I don't know, God will give you a strategy. And then in the right moment in time, you'll be able to speak up for Jesus and, and say what needs to be said, um, but maybe not on the first day or the first week. You, you'll be asking God to reveal to you when you should reveal yourself uh, to them. Okay, back to Esther and Mordecai. We don't know about any other brothers and sisters or cousins or whatever that were living in this household. Likely there were, but they're a strong little family, even if it's just the two of them. Uh, and she is at such an advantage to have him as her adopted a father. Uh, as anyone can tell you, if you've got your dad in your corner, you are at a tremendous advantage. And here we are at Father's Day with Mordecai, who is the patron saint of all dads who are raising children who are not biologically theirs. Mordecai is, is, is the, the role model of someone who chose the child years after the child was born and said, listen, I'm, she needs me. So this is, this is the foster dad. This is the adoptive parent. This is the, 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 even the grandparents that are saying, you know, we've, got to, we've just got to move the kids into our house. Uh, this is not what we signed up for, but we love these little kids. And, and for now, it's unsafe or, or unhealthy for them to be in the environment um, that they're in right now. So today, uh, we say on all five campuses and online, uh, we admire you. We applaud you. Foster dads, stepdads, um, those of you adoptive dads that have chosen a child after they're born. Who are you, by the way? Wave your hand. Uh, you're the foster dad. You're the, you're, the, you're the ones. Let's give them a hand.
So last weekend, Becky introduced us to the bad guy, to Haman, uh, an evil, extremely powerful, also wealthy uh, government official. And he's he's uh, King Xerxes' top guy. And Mordecai can't stand uh, Haman. Whenever Haman passed through the gate, Morty was the only man not bowing and scraping, and Haman hated that. And since he also hated Jewish people, he just kind of channeled that hatred into a plot to, to, uh, for an ethnic cleansing. And he and the king were drinking buddies, and in the right moment in time, Haman talked the king into an edict that said, on such and such a day in the future, all, everyone attack the Jewish people, and let's just get rid of them. They're just a plague on our uh, society. So in chapter four, Mordecai hears about this, and he puts on sackcloth and ash, as, as, as all the Jewish people do, and they, they, in a public protest against what's about to happen to them, and, uh, and, and then, and then uh, Mordecai sends word into the palace to his, his daughter, to, to Esther, and he says, you gotta do something. You gotta approach the king. He probably doesn't even know what he signed. Um, but you've got to, you got to ask him for mercy. And Esther sent word back, and she said, I can't do that. You know the law. Uh, uh, no one approaches the king with anything. The king has to invite you into his presence. And to be honest, I haven't been in the king's presence for over a month, she said. So she said, I just can't do that. But Mordecai wasn't having it. Chapter 4, verse 13, he sent back this answer. Do not think. That because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. If you remain silent at this time, God will figure out another way to rescue the Jews, but you and your father's family will perish. But who knows, he says. And I love this kind of parenting, the who knows kind of parenting. Who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Uh, and that's, that's a powerful statement. And Mordecai, it's kind of, it's interesting because he loves Esther and his natural inclination would be to protect her and she's in the most protected place in the world. Uh, hey, he could have said, you're the queen, you're safe, uh, no one even knows you're Jewish, just, just ride this one out. But Mordecai's not that kind of a dad and he knows what she's made of. So instead of coaching her towards self-preservation, instead of telling her to play it safe, he says, no, you got to do this. You're the only one who can do this. And you can do this. This is who I raised you to be. I didn't raise a trophy wife. I raised a leader. And, 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 and you've been given favor by the Persian king. And you have not been given favor by the Persian king so that you can just live in luxury while your people are annihilated. You can leverage this for good. You can risk now everything. And you know, risk is a part of leadership. And I just love how uh, Esther's dad challenges her. He leads her by pushing her towards risk. He leads her by pushing her towards greatness. And that's what leaders do. They push us towards greatness. A, a good leader draws out the greatness in all the people around them, not allowing them to settle for second best, not allowing them to choose the easy route. Leaders call us into greatness. They dare us to do the harder thing, and they do it very honestly. It's like Winston Churchill speaking to the parliament, promising the, 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 the empire, hey, we have got a fight on our hands, and I don't promise you anything except blood, sweat, and tears. 
Uh, we're going to fight him on the streets. We're going to fight him. And that speech is just powerful. But not once does he say, you know, and this is going to be greater. This is going to be easy, easy. But then he's that leader where everyone said, we're going to do this. And we saw during that time in the United Kingdom that resolve to be the last nation to push back against Hitler and to convince the United States to come into the battle. Powerful, powerful leadership at a very important time in history. I think of John F. Kennedy at his inauguration where uh, he's, he, you know, he, he, you've got this, this, this guy from this privileged family, uh, very wealthy guy, kind of a, you know, the Camelot thing happening. But Kennedy steps up and he says, oh, no, no, don't ask what your country can do for you. Kennedy's saying, that's not what I'm doing. Ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. And that's great leadership because he's calling everyone to make that contribution and to make um, that, that, that risk, no matter what it costs. And no better day than Father's Day for me to be reminding the dads, get inside your children's head. So that even when you have passed away, they are still pressing forward into leadership because that's what dad would have wanted me to do. Just haunt them with your voice. When you're sitting at that kitchen table and, and, the, and, and, and you've said some lame thing about how you, you, know, you don't have to do your homework because you can get a B anyway and who needs an A and whatever, and your dad just puts down his knife and fork which is not easy for a man to do. And he looks at you and says, oh, that is not the kid that I raised. I expect an A from you because you know what? You're capable of that. And he's not comparing you to other kids. He's comparing you to your better self. When your kid starts to say, dad, I get it, I get it. Say, do you? Do you? Because I want you to excel. I'm raising you to be a leader. And this doesn't always have to be confronted. It can sometimes just be a wonderful conversation. I remember my oldest son, Andrew. And he, he was uh, just, I, he's still alive. <laughs> Sounds like, I remember good old Andrew. Uh, I'll be seeing him this afternoon. <laughs> that was weird. Anyway, but I remember back when he was really cool. <laughs> no, anyway, uh, he was the coolest teenager. He was a really different teenager. Uh, he went to Christian school. And as a senior, when, it, when you know, his friends were running for class president and whatever, he ran for chaplain, class chaplain. And uh, chaplain, and it was, it's, it, he found out that it was actually, he, he was elected. Uh, he might have been the only one who ran, I don't know. <laughs> um, but uh, he found out that it was a lot of work because every day you're in homeroom, ding, 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 and they greet you, there's the announcements for the day, and now the chaplain is going to give us a short devotional, and Andrew Matson, five days a week, had to prepare a devotional for his peers. And then he would pray over the campus, and then he would return to class, and he would always get, his, he would come walking in, and his friends were all, hey, reverend, you know, whatever, he's like, shut up. <laughs> but that was the year that I took Andrew with me to India, and uh, I had been invited that year to to go and teach in the seminary and Bible college. And, and I, you know, what, a, what a great time for, Aunt, for me to, and Andrew to just have some, some quality time. So they had asked who's coming on the trip, and I told them, well, my son is, and you'll really enjoy him. He's the chaplain at his school, whatever. Well, they misunderstood, and they thought he was like a pastor. <laughs> and so they booked him to speak <laughs> and promised 
all these people that this pastor's gonna speak and his son's gonna speak and it's gonna be great. We get there and we, he had no clue. He had his Bible with him, but that's it. And we get there and I look at the program and I'm like, uh, Andrew, did you see this? And he's like, no, what is it, Dad? And I'm like, you're speaking tomorrow morning at nine. <laughs> it was like, OMG. And he's like, Dad, you gotta get me out of this. I'm like, oh no, I'm not getting you out of this. This is an opportunity. God gave you this opportunity. I'll help you. I'll get you ready. We're going to do this. And he got up and spoke. And I, the next 10 days, I don't know how many sermons uh, my son preached in India. And he, I dare say, was awesome. <laughs> and uh, I watched high school Andrew become Pastor Andrew right before my eyes. To the point where the night we were to return, and we were going to, you know, those middle of the night when you got to go to the airport at 3 a.m. kind of thing. So that night, Andrew and I are walking around the compound of this beautiful uh, southern Indian village where there was a little Bible college. And he said, hey, Dad, I'm not going home. And I'm like, what? He goes, no, these people need me. And I, I, I'm, and I go, Andrew, you, you're going to go home, and you're going to graduate from high school. <laughs> And then you're going to go to college. And honestly, it wasn't because I loved him. I was just afraid of his mom. Because can you imagine I get off the plane? Where's Andrew? Oh, I left him there. They need him. <laughs> but it was just like push, pushing him to greatness. And then he did it. You know, Solomon says, uh, if, you, if you train a child according to their natural gifting, then when they're older, they'll still be walking down that Path. And that's what Mordecai, had, Mordecai did. He, he trained Esther. And he didn't know when he was training her that he was training her to be the queen of Persia. He didn't know when he was training her that he was training her to risk her life to confront the king. But once uh, Mordecai pushed back, Esther doesn't disappoint. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendant will fast, as you do. So you guys fast out there. My attendants will fast in here with me. And after three days, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Now, that's a real leader. Esther knows what happened to the last queen who confronted the king. But she does the right thing no matter the cost, but before she steps up, she asks for something. What did she ask for? Fasting and prayer. Pray on my behalf. She's such a good leader. She's teaching us something here. I mean, I love reading speeches from George Washington, from Abraham Lincoln, how they asked the nation for prayer, um, calling national days of prayer even. I remember being on the Capitol steps a couple of years ago, and the Pope was in Washington, D.C. Uh, that day. And uh, I remember sitting on the Capitol steps and, and, and looking at this man that uh, had been a, a leader in the Christian community in South America and had been elected to be the next Pope. And, and he, he seemed so big up there, but he also seemed small. He was making himself small in his speech. And, and, and one of the key points of the speech was, please pray for me. He said, and he asked all of us to pray for him. The job was overwhelming to him, and we did. We prayed for him just because 
he asks. Great leaders don't hesitate to ask for prayer. When a challenge at work is looming large, ask for prayer. When you're getting ready for that hard conversation, ask for prayer. When you're under attack, ask for prayer. When someone's trying to take something precious from you, ask for prayer. When you're being called to greater responsibility, ask for prayer. I mean, you'd be foolish not to. You have the arsenal of heaven, the resources of heaven available to you for the asking. But what's beautiful is she asks other people to pray with her. She partners with people in prayer. And from that foundation, three days later, she walks in to talk to the king. Do you have somebody in your life that you could call when you need to and say, hey, this is what's going on with me. Could I ask you to pray for me? If you don't have that person yet, that's one of the reasons you joined a church. Let us know you so that we can pray for you. We'll help you find prayer partners. I remember when I found one of my lifetime prayer partners, Jeff. Um, uh, Jeff is, a, is, is an amazing man. He's a pastor now. Uh, when I met Jeff, he was headed into prison and I, uh, for some terrible things that he did as a teenager. He spent most of his life in prison, and he learned how to pray in prison. And uh, Jeff Elkins grew up in Pleasanton, actually. Spent most of his life uh, all over the California, uh, all in, in, in the prisons. Um, but he, he, he told me later, he said, there would be days where I'd spend three, four hours in my cell interceding, and God would tell me what to pray, and I'd feel the presence of God come into that cell. And he would lead cellmates to Christ, not be, just because of his prayer life. And I remember after he got out saying, uh, one time I said, hey, Jeff, I'm, I'm, I, there's something going on here. It could go this way, that way. Would you just pray with me about that? And I, he's like, yes. And he took my hand, and right then and there, he prayed for me. And not a two-minute prayer, not a five-minute prayer. It went on and on and on. And you know what? It was awesome. I felt like he was just surrounding me with prayer. And then I knew that he would keep praying for me. And even to this day, he doesn't live here anymore. He lives, but I still will call on him and, and, and I say, hey, Jeff, here's what's going on. Pray. Ask for prayer. All right. That's the introduction. Uh, now chapter five. <laughs> on the third day, Esther put on a royal robe. So she, now she's the third day. And so she's like, well, this may be the last day I'm queen. She stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. So she's already breaking the law, by the way. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall and facing the entrance, and he sees the queen at the entrance, and he says, hey, man, I haven't seen you for a month. Where you been? And she's like, uh, and, uh, and he holds out the gold scepter to her, which means approach. So, okay. And then the king asked, what do you, what do you want? What's your request? And here was her request. If it pleases the king, let the king together with Haman, your bestie, come today to a banquet I have prepared for you. She's already prepared a banquet. She already has a plan in motion. And the king was delighted. He loved banquets. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asked. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, what's your petition? And Esther replied, my petition is this. If the king regards me with favor... And if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to dinner. 
and I'm gonna prepare another banquet for you. And there I'll answer your question. This is such great leadership. She's leading up. She's leading up. She doesn't have the authority to get done what needs to be done. But what she does is she just keeps feeding this guy. <laughs> and I mean, it's not a very Christian story because she's like, more wine, you know? But he loves this stuff. And it's such a creative approach. Uh, she approaches him differently. And that's what we're gonna throw out here as a leadership principles. Leaders do things differently. Um, she, she knows him. And she knows, the, the, the king knows she's gonna be asking for something. But she gets him to say yes in between the two dinners before he even knows what uh, he's, he's going to be uh, saying yes to. And that is how to work with your boss. Said a boss. <laughs> Lead up. Do it differently. Prepare for the big presentation, but do it in a different way. Be, be compelling. Be intriguing. Be, uh, don't do the same thing everyone else does. Come to the boss with solutions to the problem. And uh, so a good leader, one who leads up, knows not just what to say, but how to say it. And uh, putting that extra thought into it. And notice she doesn't play all her cards at once. Haman is delighted. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed how he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, he restrained himself. He goes home and he tells, he, 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 he tells his wife, he tells his friends, you know, I'm awesome, right? Everybody tell me how awesome I am. And they all told him how awesome he was. And he goes, not only that, I'm the only guest invited to a banquet tomorrow night with the king. The queen wants me and the king and her, and we're going to be honored. This banquet's really awesome. And then he stops. He goes, but still, there's Mordecai. Ugh. And his wife goes, I have an idea. Kill him. What a great wife. You know, great advice there. I have a great wife. Wouldn't you hate that if you came home from work and you were complaining about somebody? And, and you're just talking, it makes me so mad. <laughs> and you, you want her to say, honey, come on. But instead she goes, I know, go back to work tomorrow and kill him. <laughs> That'll do. But that's what she does. She says, let's put a pole right in front of our house, a 75-foot stake, because this is how they executed people in Persia. And then we'll ask the king to impale Mordecai on that stake in front of our house. You like stakes. For chapter six, that night the king couldn't sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. This guy is so self-absorbed. He wakes up in the middle of the night and says, where's the books about me? And uh, so it's found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed uh, these two guys who were gonna uh, kill the king. And Mordecai heard about it and he, he exposed, told these guys. And then the king says, well, wait, what did we ever do for this guy Mordecai? And they said, nothing. And the king says, well, that's going to change today. Who's, who's out, out there uh, that can help me? And they said, well, Haman's right here. And he, verse 4, Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. And they, the attendants said, well, Haman's out here. And he's like, bring him in. When Haman entered, the king asked, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? And Haman misunderstood the request. He thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answers the king, for the man who the king delights to honor, have them bring a jersey that the king wore in the game. No, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn. Same thing. 
and a horse the king has ridden, one of the king's cars, one with a royal crest placed on his, the head of the horse. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Great idea, said the king. Go do that for Mordecai. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai, led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what was done for the men of Jesus. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. Haman rushed home. I'm in trouble, he said. His wife said, yeah, you're in big trouble. And while they were talking, the attendants came to take Haman to the banquet. Verse chapter seven, so the king and Haman went to the queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king asked again, Esther, come on, what do you want? I'll give you whatever it is you're asking. So Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, don't let anyone kill me. The king would have looked at her, what? And don't let anyone kill my people. Who are your people? For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. Verse 5, King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is trying to kill you? Who has dared to do such a thing? And Esther said, an adversary and an enemy. This guy, Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. So see, this was a moment in time where, where Esther could not avoid the confrontation any longer. She wasn't avoiding it. She was leading up to it. But, you know, this has been a hard one for me in leadership. There's certain conversations that I've just put off in the past. There's certain conversations that I've delegated. You know, hey, you, you go talk to them, I would say. Poor leadership on my part. The leader has to have the hardest conversations in the organization because leaders do not avoid conflict. That's leadership. You have to say the hard things to the right people. You don't delegate that. You speak the truth. Even if you don't know what will happen after the cat's out of the bag. Well, what happens? The king got up in a rage and left his wine and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king, this is funny, just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. Oh no, the king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? And Haman's like, it's not what it looks like. Oh, no. And as soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. And one of the eunuchs said, hey, king, a pole reaching to the height of 75 feet stands at Haman's house already. He had it set up today for Mordecai, who spoke up to help you. And the king said, well, perfect. Impale him on the pole. And then the king's fury subsided. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman. Solomon wrote, if a man digs a pit, he will fall into it. If a man rolls a stone, it will roll back on him. 
Now that's Old Testament talk for if you work very hard to plan someone else's demise, that's probably going to bite you in the butt. The more you scheme, the more you manipulate, the more you try to hurt someone, the greater the odds that something bad is going to happen to you. Haman went to a lot of effort to get Mordecai, and look what happened. Esther just went to a lot of effort to tell the king the truth and let the king resolve it. Let God take care of these things. If something bad happens to your enemy, make sure that it's not because you made that happen. People are watching you, by the way. And a gracious leader is always admired. After Haman's execution, the king gifted Esther with Haman's vast estate. And you're thinking, well, why does she need more stuff? Now, this is a fascinating point because up to this point, Esther owned nothing. She was owned by the king. Remember, she's just an she's Old Testament trophy wife. But now, the king is saying, you need your own stuff. You need your own estate. Look at how she's changing him and his view of women. He gives her Haman's entire estate. Mordecai uh, ends up managing that estate. He's a very wealthy man. When she finally revealed to Xerxes that Mordecai was actually her cousin, that they were both 100% Jewish, uh, then they started working together, and the king issued an edict. And he couldn't revoke the edict he had already put out. That's the way it worked back then. But what he did is he issued an edict to the Jews and says, if anybody's trying to attack you, you have the right to attack them first with impunity. You will, you, the Jews in 127 provinces were told, whoever is your enemy and who's plotting against you, if you need to take them out, that's okay with me. tables turned. Mordecai eventually becomes uh, the number two man in the entire kingdom. And now the Persian Empire is ruled by Xerxes, Esther, and Mordecai. The moral of the story is this. There are whole seasons where it seems like God is powerless, that God is not working, God is not even aware of us. Well, he is. He sees you. His plan is to come through for you. The tables will turn. You'll see. He's active on your behalf. Those times when we don't feel that way, our feelings are lying to us. Those times when we can't see it, that's when our faith is developed. Faith is when you see things that could not have been seen. God is building your faith right now. For God's, God's part will be to do, to do all the heavy lifting. God's part will be that he will never abandon his promises to us. God's part is to, to favor those who honor him. Your part, honor him and lead. Father, I pray right now for the five congregations that are uh, listening to this sermon and how desperately the East Bay is in need of Christian leadership. And I pray that out of Cornerstone would come leadership in every neighborhood, every business, every school, every marketplace. That the Christians would lead, yes, from a minority position, but that doesn't even slow us down. 
I pray, Lord, that we would learn this summer from Esther, Mordecai, Nehemiah, how to lead. And that we would be willing to do the hard thing, to review these principles and step into our leadership challenges, knowing that you are with us, you are in us. We have people praying for us. God is for us. What can man do to us? So Lord, I pray that every man, woman, and child in this congregation would not give themselves a pass, would not wait for someone else to lead. Leadership is not a personality type. Leadership is a calling for all Christians. And I pray that we would answer that call and that your Holy Spirit would fill us and that you would favor us so that we can repair the torn fabric of the culture of the East Bay. As we come alongside each person in the East Bay and help them take their next step with Jesus. We pray these things in the powerful name of our leader, Jesus Christ. And all God's people agreed by saying, Amen. Good. Thank you.